Well, it's a privilege to be here back with you, and Richard, thank you for that. Uh, that was a great description of RUF. I, you, should, uh, you should go around and start you know, talking to churches on behalf of RUF, and that was, that was awesome. Thank you so much uh, for capturing so well, I think, what, uh, what makes RUF a really wonderful ministry. Uh, I, I, forgive me for my stubble this morning. I, I'm doing No Shave November with some of my, about 10 of my college student guys, and so Unfortunately, I'm a little scruffy looking and beardless, and I look funny and feel funny, but um, I appreciate you just not mentioning that to me. <laughs> um, well, this morning we are going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21. One, of what, one way you can think about the book of 1 John, this little letter that the Apostle John wrote uh, near the end of his life, is he's an old man writing to uh, Christians. You can think about this book as like a, a rope or a braid that is made of three different strands. John keeps returning again and again to three different tests for faith, true faith in the life of a Christian. So there's first the moral test he, he mentions a number of times in this book, which is mainly, do you obey the commandments of God? Do you obey God's commands? There's also the doctrine test. Do you believe in the person and work of Jesus uh, as passed down by the apostles? And then finally, there's the social test. Do you love other people? And in particular, do you love uh, brothers and sisters in Christ? And, you know, to continue with this analogy of a rope, you could say that, that the life of a Christian is made up of three strands, holiness, faith, and love. And that's what the Christian life looks like, according to this little letter in the New Testament. So this morning, we are looking at uh, this passage in 1 John 4, which is the final section the last major section having to do with the social test of love. And we are going to hear this morning and read that God is love, that He is the source of all love. And, and we will be considering together this morning what God's love looks like when it is perfected in us. So let's give our attention now to God's Word, 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. By this is love perfected in us, with us rather. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love... For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him and ask him for his help again this morning. Our Lord, just as we heard the invitation from Isaiah a few moments ago to come to you and eat and be filled and be satisfied and Lord, we know our hearts are so often tempted and um, 
and, and move to, to go other places, to go to bread which does not satisfy, to go to, to drink which does not quench our thirst. And so, Lord, we ask that as we come to your word this morning that we would have our thirst quenched, that we would have our hunger satisfied, that we would feast upon your word, that we would, um, that we would see the Lord Jesus, that we would uh, be transformed by his love for us, that uh, we pray, O oh Lord, that as we read and consider your word this morning, that it would not return to you void, but it would accomplish what you intend. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, yesterday I got to experience one of the great joys of my job, which is I had two of my former students, actually two of my freshmen, two freshmen from my very first year, 2015, my first year at Tennessee Tech, uh, two of my freshmen from that uh, class got engaged to each other on, on Friday night. And so yesterday they came by our house and just to visit, just to you know celebrate with us, just to share the wonderful news with us. And it was really sweet uh, just to have been walking with this couple for, for so many years and to know them for so long. And I remember, you know, it wasn't that long ago, it was a few years ago, I remember sitting down with each of these students individually and them, at, you know, when they were first starting to become interested in each other, but they weren't sure, you know, if that was going to be received or whatever. And so I remember sitting down with this young man and him saying, I really like her, but I don't know, I don't know how she feels about me and her saying the same sort of thing, like, I really, I'm kind of interested in him, but I don't know, you know, I don't know what, what he's thinking, how do, I, how do I know that he's interested? And I remember, you know, they eventually started dating, and then maybe a year or 18 months later, I remember sitting down with him again at various points and having follow-up conversations, you know, how do I know that I love her? How do I know that she is interested, you know, that she loves me? How do I know that, that he's the man that I'm supposed to marry? How do I know that I'm ready for marriage? And, and having these conversations, and it's one of the, my favorite parts of my job that I get to do. And there can be a lot of uncertainty in our relationships, can't there, right? That how do I really know what this other person thinks about me? How do I really know how they feel towards me? And perhaps it's easy for us even to feel that same uncertainty in our relationship with God, right? The Bible, as we know, is full of God's promises towards us, Right, but how do I know that these promises are true in my life? You know, just as John has said in our passage, we can't see God. The Bible tells me that He loves me, right, with a steadfast love. But how do I really know that I have received that love? How do I know that I'm experiencing that love? How do I know that I have it? How do I know that God really loves me? If you look at verse 16 in our passage, John writes, we have come to know and believe the love God has for us. So it is possible to know and believe that God loves us, but how? Well, we know because of these three tests, which I've already mentioned, right, that John keeps returning to throughout his letter, that we, if we see the evidence of holiness and faith and love growing in our hearts and in our lives, we know then that we are abiding in God, that he is abiding in us. We live in him and he lives in us. The only way that you grow, that you and I grow in holiness and faith and love, is if we have received the love of God, if we are resting in the Lord Jesus. So it's possible to know that God loves you, right? And in verses 17 through 21, John makes it clear that the love of God changes us. It transforms us. Just as we heard from that wonderful J.I. Packer quote earlier, the love of God shapes us. It makes us different. How so? Well, just two reasons that I want to pull out from this passage this morning and, and think about for a few moments. Two of the ways that God's love changes us is that it leads to a decrease in fear 
and an increase in love. And so let's consider those two points this morning. A decrease in fear. We see this in verses 17 through 19. And John writes in verse 17 that this is how we know God's love is working in us and being perfected in us and that we are abiding in God. We have this confidence as we consider the approaching day of judgment. In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches us that when he returns in his glory, he will separate the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the wicked. The righteous will inherit the kingdom. They will enter into eternal life, but the wicked will go away into eternal punishment. And the truly terrifying thing about that passage is that some of the wicked had no idea that they were wicked. They seemed to have no idea that punishment awaited them. And that can cause a certain amount of fear in us, right? How can, how can I be assured of my salvation? How can I be assured that I belong to Jesus on the day of judgment? You know, I remember being a kid, and maybe this is due to an active imagination and you know, too many movies or something, but I remember being a kid and, and lying in bed at night, and if there was a really big storm, you know, I had a big tree above my bedroom uh, over, over my, next, to my, next to our house, and I remember there would be a big storm, like lightning and thunder, and the wind is howling, and I would start to think, God is angry with me, right? God is, this tree is going to fall and, and crush me in my bed. It's a really dark thought for an eight-year-old boy, but, but I remember laying in bed terrified of, of that I had done something wrong, that God was angry with me. And that's what John is referring to in this passage, a fear of judgment and punishment. And one of the things that the love of God does as it is working in us, as it is being perfected in us, is that it gives us confidence on the, for the day of judgment. Not only do we have confidence about that day, but it's actually something that we even long for. If you look back in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, one of my favorite verses in this entire book says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, that's Jesus, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so there's this, this idea here that, that, you know, when Jesus appears in his glory, that we will uh, be like him because we will see him as he really is. That as Christians, we are not afraid of the second coming of Christ. As Christians, we actually long for that day. We long for the day when we will see our Savior with our eyes, to see him on that great day of salvation. And our salvation will be complete. Our bodies and souls will be perfected. We will be glorified. We will be made like him. John says. And this idea of approaching God in confidence is not unique to John. We also read from the writer uh, in the book of Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews says uh, in in Hebrews 4.16 that we actually draw near to God's throne of grace in confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. I mean, I think about, you know, throne rooms from like the history of, you know, from from myths and from Lord of the Rings and from, from stories and from history who gets to enter a throne room with complete confidence? Who gets to enter a throne room with a request without worrying if the king is in a bad mood? Who gets to enter into a throne room without wondering if the king's attitude towards you has changed since you last spoke? Probably only a beloved child of the king. A beloved child of the king can enter the throne room with a request and with complete confidence that they will be received and heard. And that's what John is saying to us, that we approach the day of judgment as a beloved child of the king. 
we approach with complete confidence. And why do we get to approach with complete confidence? Well, let's look at verse 18, where John writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So John says we go with confidence because God loves us, and we know that, and we are assured of that, and we believe that, because the perfect love of God is working in us to cast out our fears, because fear, he reminds us, has to do with punishment, and the child of God has no reason to fear punishment with God. Why not? Well, you can look back at me, back at verse 10, earlier in chapter 4, look at chapter 4, verse 10, We read this, and in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to be the propitiation for our sins. That that Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, has turned away the wrath of God from God's people. That if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are in Christ, there is zero punishment in your future. There is zero reason to fear punishment from God. Paul reminds us this as well in Romans 8 verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no punishment awaits us if we are in Christ. And so this is how you and I approach the day of judgment if we're abiding in Jesus. We approach as someone who knows and believes that God loves us, We approach as someone who longs to be glorified, to be transformed, as someone who longs to see our Lord Jesus face to face. But we do not approach as someone who's fearing punishment. And I want to drill down a little bit deeper into fear for just a moment. John, you know, is specifically referring to fear related to judgment in this passage and punishment. But I think it's fair to say that any type of fear is really at odds with the Christian life, except uh, only accepting the, the fear of God, which we are exhorted to in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. But fear, other than that, is, is at odds with the Christian life. I mean, in 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul reminds Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of self-control. And so fear really has no place in the Christian life. If we, because if we don't have to fear the day of judgment, then what else could there possibly be for us to fear? The most frightening day that will ever occur is one that we approach with confidence and even with expectation. And so what do we have to fear? If we can trust the Lord to care for our eternal souls on the day of judgment, then we can trust Him right now with our children and with our health and with our jobs and with our future and with the future of our nation. So what fears may be lurking in your heart this morning? How can we approach those fears with confidence, trusting in the Lord? I mean, we, we were just coming off the election night that never seemed to end this past week, right? And uh, there's a variety of emotional responses and reactions to the events of this past week. And I'm sure there's even a spectrum of emotions in this room regarding the events of this week. And perhaps there's fear, fear about what the future may hold for our nation moving forward. And so what does it look like for us to trust the Lord right now in this season, 
to flee from fear, to trust in the Lord and his love for his people, his love for us, even when we're uncertain about what the future holds. God's love is perfected in us, and it leads to a decrease in fear, particularly a decrease in fear as it relates to judgment, as it relates to punishment. But also God's love leads to an increase in love in our lives as well. We see this in verses 19 through 21. One of the most famous verses in this little letter is, is uh, verse 19, uh, chapter 4, verse 19. It serves as a wonderful transition here. We love because he first loved us. John has been talking about how the love of God is working in us, how it is changing us, how it connect, and, and now he connects that idea to how we love one another, to how we love others. And this little verse reminds us that God's love is primary, that he is the initiator of all love. As, as we see uh, in our passage this morning, God himself is love, that he is the source of all love. As, as Reformed Christians, we know that we would never love God unless he first set his love on us, that we were God's enemies, but by the power of his love, we have been brought near we have been made into his sons and his daughters. And the only reason that we love God, as our passage says, is because he first loved us. And the only way that we can truly love others is if God has first loved us. So look at verse 20, where we read this, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Just as God's perfect love drives out fear, the fear of God, the fear of judgment, the fear of punishment, it drives out hatred for our brothers and sisters. John's point here seems to be that it is much easier to love a person who, is, who you can see, who you can touch, a person sitting right in front of you, standing right in front of you. It's much easier to love a person who you can see than it is to love God whom you cannot see. And so John is saying, if you can't love that visible brother or sister whose needs you can see and identify clearly, if you can't love them, then how can you claim to love a God who is invisible to you? Another reason this is impossible is because to love other people is one of the ways that we demonstrate our love for God. Right, Because human beings are part of God's creation, but more specifically, human beings are made in the image of God. And here's what John Calvin says to that point. It is a false boast when anyone says that he loves God but neglects his image, which is before his eyes. How can you love God and yet hate a person made in God's image right in front of you? The Bible says it's impossible. Surprisingly, one of the harder parts of my job of being a pastor is getting people to talk about their spiritual lives. I mean, on one hand, it's easy because they're always expecting me to go there. They're always expecting me to, to, to open that topic. But, but most people, you know, I think really don't know how to assess their own spiritual health and talk about it. And so if I ask a student, you know, uh, meeting with a student on campus, if I ask a student, how's your spiritual life going? How, how's your spiritual health you know, nine times out of ten, they will give me the same answer, and they'll just start talking about their devotional lives, the quality and consistency of their devotional lives. 
right? And they'll say, well, things are going well. I've been praying a lot more recently. Or they'll say, uh, things aren't going that great. I need to read my Bible more. Nine times out of 10, that's the answer that, that I get. And while those are certainly important things, they often aren't the best barometers of our spiritual health because it's possible to have a perfect streak of quiet times and to still not really love God or love your neighbor. And so one of the more effective ways that I've found to investigate, to consider someone's uh, spiritual health is just to ask about how their relationships with other people are going. Because if someone starts talking about how they're constantly arguing with their roommate and how they can't stand their parents and how they're regularly having trouble with their friendships, it's a pretty good indicator that their relationship with God is not doing well either. Love for God and love for others is sort of a package deal, right? It comes together. A genuine love for other people is only possible when the love of God is being perfected in someone's heart and life. Now, this doesn't mean that there's never conflict with other people. Of course, there will be conflict. If you, if you put even redeemed sinners together long enough, there will be some friction and some conflict. You're going to have conflict with your family members and with your friends and with your coworkers and with your roommates and even with your fellow church members. But that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. That doesn't mean you're not truly, uh, you don't belong to Jesus. But how we consistently handle those conflicts is where the evidence of love is going to be seen. And now, while it's true that a love for all people is encouraged in the Bible, John, in his little letter here, really has in view the love for other Christians, right? That's what he means when he keeps using this term, brother, right? He's referring to your brothers and sisters in Jesus. And so, as we read in verse 21, he says, And this commandment we have from him, that whoever loves God must also love his brother. To love the Lord requires, necessitates us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And notice that the Bible is not merely calling us to avoid hate. The Bible, uh, you know, sometimes you might hear someone say something like this, well, I don't hate that person, but I just really don't like them. I really don't trust them. Or you might hear someone say something like, I just don't like that guy. I just don't want to be around him. And so sometimes we sort of it's easy to believe, it's easy to convince ourselves that as long as we have no negative feelings towards a person, then we're okay. But that's not what the Bible is commanding us here. We aren't commanded to merely not hate. We're not even commanded to just be neutral towards one another. We're commanded to love. And there's a big difference there. To love someone means that we genuinely desire to see them blessed by God. We genuinely want to see them enjoying God's good gifts. We want to see them doing well. We want to see them flourishing. Another RUF uh, campus minister told me the story of two students. This is, not, this is not one of the situations where I'm like, another campus minister said this, but it's really about me. This was actually another campus minister. Uh, another campus minister told me a story of two students in his group who were engaged, and they, the engagement was broken off. They, 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 it didn't work out. The engagement fell apart. It was kind of messy. And the girl uh, in this relationship would meet with her campus minister every week. And they would just talk through her heartache and just the, the painful nature of the situation. But one day, on a Monday morning, she came to their meeting and she said, You know, I think I'm going to be okay. I think I forgive him. I'm still hurting but I have confidence now that I'm going to heal, that I'm going to be fine. And the campus minister thought, wow, this is great. Like, 
maybe it was something I said to her last week, and she's really been thinking about it, really stuck with her, you know? Like, and so he asked her, like, well, what happened? What, what changed? And she said, I was at church yesterday, and I saw my ex-fiance taking communion. And I saw him eating the bread and drinking the cup. And I realized Jesus died for him just as much as he died for me. Jesus loves him just as much as he loves me. That we are part of the same spiritual family. And Jesus is our peace. And that's why love is so important in the household of God. Because not only are you, are you dealing with people who are image bearers of God, you're dealing with people for whom Jesus died. You are dealing with people who are a part of the beloved bride of Christ, people with whom you will spend eternity, people with whom you are bound together by the Holy Spirit, people with whom you are being built up into the temple of the living God. How can you love God and hate his child? How can you love the Lord Jesus and hate his bride? How can you love the Spirit and hate one in whom he abides? So maybe this morning, this weekend, there is another Christian that you're struggling to hate, not to hate right now. Maybe there's a, another Christian that you are trying to be neutral towards and you're thinking, that's okay. Maybe this morning there are certain people or groups of people or types of people, especially coming off an election week, that you are thinking, I really don't like those people. I really don't love those people. Maybe this morning Jesus is calling us to repent of our hatred, to repent of our neutrality, our, our, our supposed neutrality, and he's calling us to embrace love. And this love is not something that you and I can muster up on our own the ability to love is ours only as the love of God is being perfected in us, as his love warms our hearts towards one another. When Jesus saves us, he, he invites us, he calls us into his kingdom, into his family. It is a kingdom of perfect love. It is a family where that perfect love casts out fear and casts out hatred it's a place where we will dwell in holiness and faith and love forever. Jesus invites us to receive and rest in that perfect love this morning, to rejoice as all of our fear and all of our hatred is cast out. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer once again. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we know that it is so easy to live lives in fear. It's so easy to live lives uh, in, in dislike, distrust of, of others. But Lord, we pray that your perfect love would invade us, would fill us, it would cast out our fear, break down walls of hostility and, and resentment and resistance within us, that we would live lives marked by trust in you, marked by love for you, marked by love for one another, that you would give us the grace and the strength do those things this very day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.